First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you and for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask your blessing upon it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would grant wisdom and understanding, opening our eyes, making tender our heart, our conscience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are students at a Christian college, DePaul University, uh, who have been eliminated from campus because they have said that LGBTQ lifestyles are a sin. The University of Iowa has, has removed the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, refusing to allow them on campus because they require their members to uh, hold to specific faith standards. University of Iowa uh, did the same thing last year with uh, business leaders in Christ uh, because uh, they um, believe in a common statement of faith and of fellowship. InterVarsity was removed from 40 colleges in the California uh, State University system so far because of their views on, uh, again, LGBTQ issues. Wayne State uh, decided to remove the uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship because they were, the group requires its leaders to be Christians. Uh, another college removed another Christian uh, chapter of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship because, uh, actually at Harvard University, because um, they asked one female individual to step down and resign from her position on the student leadership group because she revealed that she was dating someone of the same sex. It's not just there on college campuses, but the head of a conservative Christian group in Virginia had to uh, find a new venue for a recent uh, restaurant outing uh, for her Christian group because the uh, the staff looked up what the group represented and decided that they didn't share their Christian values. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you're a Major League Baseball player, but I am. And last week, Matt Dermody and Anthony Bass, both of whom are Christians, uh, were removed from their 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 uh, Major League Ball Club rosters, designated for assignment, and he's essentially fired from the Toronto Blue Jays and the Boston Red Sox because of their views concerning relevant current social issues um, and their commitment and faith to Jesus Christ. 
Well, this is not unusual. We're used to this sort of thing. We've been seeing quite a bit of this. Uh, And in these ways, here in the Western world, we think, you know, when you start to talk about suffering, suffering is not really something that the Western church has difficulty with. And we have made arguments on Wednesday evening Bible studies over the last few weeks, as well as previous weeks here, as Peter has really considered suffering to be a central subject. He is writing to uh, exiled, alien people. In other words, people who are on the fringes of society precisely for one reason, because they're believers. And because they're believers, they are ostracized. They are perhaps even made homeless because uh, they they, they are booted out from the places where they have been living or they've lost their jobs Uh, And for whatever reason they are enduring suffering, whatever that suffering looks like, Peter is writing to a church and and he states very clearly, repeatedly, exiles, aliens, uh, those who are suffering. Now, in in our Western world, we don't typically take in the idea of suffering and say, well, yes, we are suffering for Jesus. And there's a sense in which we are and that yet it looks different than the rest of the world. But but there are many Christians here in, in, in America and in the Western world who are suffering. Matt Dermody and, and Anthony Bass would say, yeah, I'm suffering for Jesus Christ. I lost my job, my means of providing for my family. Because I hold to a biblical ideal of marriage, of relationship, of male and female interaction. We know what it is and we've seen it exacerbated in the last few years last couple of decades, the idea that if you hold to Christian ideals or values, you will be ostracized, you may lose your job, you will be pushed out in your family and relationships, your comments, your, 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 your discussion of what's going on currently as we live in a, a very uh, political world, a, a very, uh, there are flashpoints everywhere in, in our culture and in conversation over what current events are going on, circumstances relating to presidential, uh, um, um, presidential elections and everything taking place. And, well, we, we know what it is as Christians to be sidelines in many respects placed on the sidelines, asked to simply be quiet or to lose one's job because of one's Christian commitments. I remember years ago when I was working in corporate America and there were individuals that were working for me and their break room was was rife with all sorts of uh, paraphernalia, physical pornography, uh, as well as conversations that took place and they were uh, even though working for me, they love to say all manner of things that would uh, cause me grave difficulty as a Christian. Well, there are various ways that the church throughout the world suffers because of holding fast to Jesus Christ. Businessmen and businesswomen who are seeking to do things in a godly way and to value their customers in, a, in an appropriate way to speak honestly and truthfully and to hold fast to Christian ideals and not uh, not steal uh, are nonetheless marginalized at times because of their their perspective and their views on the word of God. And they're holding fast to Jesus Christ and desiring to live for him in the world. Maybe you don't know that 360 million Christians are counted uh, to be in the immediate vicinity and enduring 
high levels of persecution and discrimination daily. 360 million Christians. Never mind the hundreds of millions of Christians in China uh, who must worship the Lord God in some way on a ship out on the ocean or in their cellars or quietly behind closed doors and draped over windows. I think the numbers are much, much higher than that. 5,000 churches were destroyed last year in the name of destroying Christianity. And 100 to 100,000 to 160,000 Christian people, precisely because they are believers in Christ, are killed on a yearly basis. And that's as many as we can ascertain, despite the closure of China and the closure of North Korea and many other countries as well. Well, what do we say about all of this? Peter has much to say about suffering as a Christian and what suffering in the world looks like and what suffering uh, will take place, how we should respond to it. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, suffering began for all mankind. And man began to die to experience the bodily effects of death through disease and ailments and weakness and pain. So too those who are faithful to God Faithful to his word, began to experience persecution. One of the first was Abel, uh, Adam's son, who simply didn't say anything to his brother Cain. He just simply served the Lord, uh, offered to God the best of what he had with a pure and whole heart. And his brother saw it, was jealous and killed him. And the nature of that same opposition has been continuing to this day. Suffering is a fact of this earthly life. We must understand its place and significance in the life of the believer and purpose in the life of the believer. Peter does not have in view in this passage a general suffering of a believer. In other words, things which are common to uh, the human condition. Maybe Maybe you're struggling with immunodeficient diseases. Maybe you're struggling with children who are opposed to your world and life view. Maybe you're struggling with personal sins. All of those things are a form of suffering, but specifically, Peter has in view, suffering related to carrying out our Christian duty of living for God in a pagan world and thus being ridiculed or persecuted for it. So there are some proper ways and some improper ways in responding to it. There are some things that we examine as it concerns Peter speaking about the subject of suffering. The first point I'd like to make this morning, and there are five, is that there is an improper response to Christian suffering. There is an improper response to Christian suffering. Peter says it right away. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Christians can look at persecution and say, you won't believe what happened to me. Why did this happen? This is bizarre. This is odd. This is strange. Well, the Christian understands that we suffer in this world because... We hold fast to Jesus Christ. Christ said in the Gospels in John 15, because of me, you will suffer. They will they will ridicule you. They will persecute you for my name's sake. Jesus also said, in this world, you will have tribulation. 
Well, we can see that the wicked in this world also bear many afflictions, and we seem to see no, little or no difference between themselves and ours, ourselves. If you look at Job and his conversations, he struggled with looking at how the ungodly seems to increase and does not suffer what the believer does. And the psalmist in Psalm 73 asks the same questions. Why do the wicked seem to excel? Why do the wicked grow fat and old and have much leisure? Well, the truth is that the unbeliever, even though they seem on the surface to be succeeding quite well, they they're separated from Christ. They apprehend nothing but God's wrath uh, about God's wrath and curse, and so they live life ignorant entirely of their God, willingly, willingly of their own will, rejecting their things of God which are true and revealed of God which He has made known to them. There's a sense of hopelessness that they have which will never be satisfied, a desire for something and yet never able to find it in God. But for the believer, suffering in this world is something that is perfectly normal. It's the usual prospect for which suffering serves in our sanctification. In other words, if you if you are a believer and you take your faith and trust in Christ seriously, you will suffer in this world. Because you have the aroma of Jesus Christ that rests upon you. And because Jesus has told you that you will suffer for his sake. We, we have to fill up the sufferings of Christ. We glorify God in our suffering in this world. And Peter even quotes a passage from Proverbs. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And so we ought not to say this is a strange and unusual thing that I'm suffering for the cause of Christ. Maybe the response to that kind of a question would be, well, why haven't you suffered thus far? Are you taking tracts at the back of the church and seriously thinking about handing them out to someone? Or are you seriously sharing your faith with other believers? Are you risking those relationships for the purpose of saving, if God uses you as an instrument, the saving of their souls? The usual, the usual prospect for suffering serves our sanctification. From the earliest day when suffering begins, it stirs a sinner's conscience to a, a wholesome seriousness, seriousness through all of our convictions and conversion, Christian warfare. The Lord uses suffering to humble the proud, to mortify our earthliness, to check our pride, to foster spiritual mindedness. It's the fact that sicknesses are premonitions of death which makes them an active means of sanctification. And if we are worried and concerned about our death, if we have a near-death experience, we're concerned for our very life in this world because of persecution, the truth is that it enables us to live with more of an eternal mindset. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, working and ripening us for heaven. Death or the prospect of it, it's oftentimes is the only means potent enough to prevent depravity from breaking out in the life of the believer. Christ gave us, as our captain, the supreme evidence of his love and devotion. It's most appropriate that we should be willing to suffer for him to present like evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's in this way that we become 
partakers of his sufferings and signal forth his victory over death. So there's an improper response to suffering to be surprised and to consider it a strange thing when, in fact, we're called to it. We're commanded to suffer with Christ, to enter into that crucible of suffering with our Savior and to be unashamed. The second thing is from this passage is that there is a a proper response to suffering. There is a joy that should mark the believer. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. In other words, we're to have a perspective on our present day suffering when in fact because we are Christians, when in fact because we are committed to live for Jesus Christ in a world, to abstain from fleshly lusts, to not go with ungodly persons like we saw in chapter 3, when they tell us we need to go and do these, these, these fun, these glorious, these delightful, soul-filling exercises of, of ungodliness and we say we cannot go there with you. And they ridicule us for it. Peter is saying, look, what you need to have is not just a mind that dwells on the immediacy of your loss of friends or of your suffering and physical pain or mental pain of your persecution. But rather to have a view that looks at eternity itself and says, I can rejoice right now, even though I'm experiencing some suffering because I'm a Christian in the world. Maybe we're ostracized from our loved ones because they don't believe and we do. Maybe they don't want to have anything to do with us anymore. Or we've shared the gospel with our friends or our cousins or our aunts and uncles or our mother or father, maybe a husband or a wife yet again. And they have ridiculed us and set us aside. And now we experience that, that, that distance once again. They don't call us. They don't really want to have anything to do with us. You know, Christianity is good enough for you. The church is good for you, but I'm going to do my own thing, go my own way. Or maybe as a Christian husband or parent, you said to your employer, look, I I can't work seven days a week. I'm not going to work on Sunday with, with respect, with humility. It's the day I worship the Lord. It's the day to be with my family and draw near to God. The free practice of my religion. And maybe you've been told by your employer, you be here or you lose your job. I've been told that twice. Thankfully, not by this present employer. Although I do work on Sundays every week. And so do all of you together as we prepare this place and and open the doors and turn the air conditioning on and lay things out and prepare the nurseries and all those other things. The delightful service of the Lord that we partake in, partake of together. But if you've suffered for Jesus in this world, the truth is, and, and, and if you're presently suffering in some way, you need to have an eternal perspective that you can rejoice right now because there is going to be a day when all that has ever taken place will be revealed and Christ will come in the clouds and we will be with the Lord for all eternity. And when that happens, the significance of what you suffered now and how it glorified Jesus Christ now and then will be seen. And your heart will be full. 
So we can rejoice and hope that one day we will see and glorify Jesus when he is revealed in glory and that he will see and has seen even now, but he will one day commend you for it and rejoice over you for suffering for his name. So we shouldn't act surprised, but we should rejoice because Fundamentally, we share in Christ Jesus. If you suffer in some way, you find difficult circumstances because you're, you're a believer and your life has been pressed or, or there are others around you who have ridiculed or made fun of you or persecuted you or you've experienced difficulty. I, I knew a Christian woman who it was gravely difficult for her year after year. Her husband was not a believer. She shared the Lord with him. She'd bring him to church with him. Sometimes on special holidays, he'd come with her. But he would angrily and often complain. And so finally one day she decided, I, I'm, I can't come to church anymore. Because my life is difficult. I don't want it to be difficult anymore. So she decided that she would abstain from coming to church. And so the truth is that Peter has an antidote for that joy. A Christian joy that can well up within the individual as we have not just a view of what presently is taking place, but also of future circumstances and expectation of life with the Lord and of God's commendation. We rejoice now because we live in hope, Christian hope, not not some bare conjecture of or, or some wishful thinking about the future, but but, but hope, which is based in the Bible, is based upon God's explicit promises. And so when a Christian hopes, we believe with full expectation that God will fulfill what he has said. That's what Christian hope is. My God will complete what he has promised. And so the chief consolation for believers who suffer in the name of Jesus Christ in this world It comes from your and my fellowship with Christ in his suffering. Christ was afflicted. Christ suffered for you and for me. And so there's deep consolation when we experience some difficulty, some mild difficulty, or perhaps even extreme difficulty. Certainly, who would be here? Who is here this morning that would deny that within 20 years, within the next 10 years, within the next five years, life will get more and more difficult for the church here in the Western world. Have we not seen being a Christian in a world made more and more difficult over the last three years? I'm I'm extraordinarily surprised by, I'm amazed. I, I, I marvel at how rapidly the world has degenerated into Kind of a position that here in the state of Massachusetts, a million people, over one million people gathered into Boston yesterday to rejoice over one particular area of sin and the Pride Festival and parade throughout Boston. One man who was interviewed said, well, he brought his two young under 10 year old children and he said, I brought my children because. This is the world we live in now. This is reality. This is normal behavior. I agree. 
I don't agree with his response and what he's done, but that is the normalcy of our own present condition. We should not be surprised when we see society turning Christianity completely on its head. And we should not be surprised when the world is going to hell as quickly and as rapidly as it can and is proclaiming over things which God says abomination. The world says this is reality. This is normalcy. And so as believers, we should not be amazed. It's extraordinary to see this. It is a certain portion of the Christian suffering in the world to see ungodliness strutting in the street, rejoicing, proclaiming this is the new normal. My consolation, your consolation, is that Christ is with us in our afflictions. And that even though we see the world extraordinarily embracing ungodliness and wickedness in every form, proclaiming that it is normal and right and good and real, we as Christians can say, my God... My God is not unaware of these circumstances. God is ordering all things for his glory and our good. And everything that we see taking place is an indication actually of God's judgment against our nation. And what can we do but put our hands up and our head down and say, glory be to God. Because he is holy And he will not tolerate unholiness. He is holy and perfect in all of his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. He is pure beyond pure. God will judge wickedness in our world. The third thing we see in this text is there is a knowledge gained through suffering. There's a knowledge gained through suffering. Keep on rejoicing, he says in verse 13. But in verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. (laughs) There's something that we come to recognize. There's something that we become aware of when we suffer for Jesus Christ. We become aware of the fact that the aroma of Christ, the very appearance of Christ, the, the image of God has been made evident in us to the world in which we live. And therefore, when we suffer, we suffer because we are connected to Christ. And so that we should rejoice in the knowledge that my life displays Christ to such an extent that someone is uncomfortable with it, that others feel they must reject it, must speak out against it. It's the medium of of conveying special grace to us. These afflictions are special agencies of the Spirit, are signs of the Spirit's unusual interest in us, concern for us, and and for the purposes of God that God has for you and for me. There is a hidden perception of the believer in their faith that God is aware of and glorified in our suffering. Paul boasted about suffering in Galatians 6.17. The poet learns in suffering what he teaches in song and writes in prose. And the Christian's power to serve is a product of his trying or her trying circumstances. When we experience suffering, we deepen in our relationship with God. We become more aware 
of who we are in Christ Jesus, more aware of him evident in us. Christian suffering brings our our identity of Christ to the fore. The Spirit of God surely rests on us if, in fact, we suffer for Jesus. There's a correct name, fourthly, fourthly by way of the outline of the passage this morning in my sermon, is a correct name under which to suffer. We are not to suffer under false names like murderer, like thief, like meddler, evildoer. Let's say you're incarcerated because you stole something. You're incarcerated because you murdered someone. Well, that's not really suffering as a Christian now, is it? But if, like our Christian brothers and sisters to the north in Canada are imprisoned because they are opening their churches and worshiping the Lord? Have they suffered as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer? No. A meddler? They've suffered because they have a consuming desire to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter intimates that those are ungrateful to God who clamor and murmur on account of persecution or suffering as though they were unworthily dealt with. But they ought to regard it as gain and to acknowledge God's favor if, in fact, we do suffer. Because we're suffering for Jesus. We live in an ungodly society, in a wicked nation, and we are suffering for Jesus. What did Lot do? Hebrews talks about righteous Lot and his suffering at the hands of his neighbors, and and how he looked upon his society and wept, grieved over the ungodliness of his generation. Do you grieve, dear friends, over the ungodliness of our world? Do you in any way take an interest in what's going on, what current events are taking place, the direction of politics and the direction of the politicians and the decisions that they're making? Do you know that your Christian brothers and sisters are being removed from YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all the social media accounts because they love Jesus? And the moment they talk about anything relating to sexual fidelity and or godly approach to living, they're immediately canceled often. Not always, but often. One day we'll be booted off of YouTube, most likely. I expect it. I'm just awaiting it. Not because of anything in our, of ourselves, but because God's truth is spoken. What ought to occur to us, how we ought to respond to suffering and to the wickedness of our world is to say, I'm indeed unworthy to be visited by the Lord with this. And with even great, I, I, I am worthy to suffer greatly. I deserve to suffer greater punishment for my sins. But now he would have me suffer for righteousness. And I am willing to do this for him because he has suffered and died for me. So the correct correct name under which we suffer is to be a Christian. If anyone suffers, verse 16, as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in that name. If you're like righteous Lot and you weep over the condition of our, our nation, you're concerned deeply over the continued embrace of sin and the normalcy of sin and the practice of sin, If those things are normal, then your embrace of Christ, your worship of the Lord on the Lord's day, that's not normal anymore. That's unusual. 
It's no longer normal here in the Northeast. It, it may be in southern climes here in our own present nation, but here in the Northeast, it is not normal to worship the Lord on the Lord's day and to gather together in the assembly of God's people. And to accept the word of God, to take in the word of God, to listen to it, to submit to it, to take it to our, our hearts and to obey and believe. That's not normal. That's unusual. So when we experience persecution, when things become difficult, don't suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler, but in as much as others say those, those meddling Christians... You embrace that reality. Bear that name with joy. Yes, I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm I'm an adherent to the Word of God. Yes, I love the Lord Jesus Christ more than life itself. I'm willing to do anything for Him. I count it a matchless blessing to me to know Christ and Him crucified. It's better for me to know Christ than for me to know And to love the world. Fifthly, there is a vicarious nature of suffering. Peter heaps consolation upon the suffering church. As we sometimes seemingly submit our backs to the scourges of God, it's a sweet consolation that God does not execute his judgments on us as on others, but that he makes us representatives of his son when we suffer for his name and his cause. Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Is God judging his people? God is judging the world. It's the usual form of God's dealings with the world that he should begin with his own people in the first, make them examples of his impending judgment as the head of a family corrects his own children first rather than those of strangers we might be inclined to think as 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 david in psalm 73 said that the wicked are granted a reprieve from god but god clarifies god shows the world that he will deal rigorously with sin and one day he will judge the world the living and the dead god god does not privilege the wicked with his judicial care In this world, God does not privilege the wicked with his disciplinary care. He does not chastise them as a father. He does not scourge them as sons, as Hebrews 12 says. They don't have that privilege. They can embrace what they want and they can call normal whatever they want. They can call reality whatever they want to call reality. But God will not permit you to do that. And God will sift you first and he will discipline his church and make it more gloriously a reflection of his son. And he does that not only for our spiritual good, but also to warn the world that God takes sin seriously. God is not sparing ungodly people and the wicked, but he is passing by their sins until the day of judgment and storing up their offenses while he restores by corrections and godly fatherly discipline his own children for whom he has a care to the right way whenever we depart from it. It's always true that Reformation should begin in the church. 
That God is at work in the church. If God spares not his own children whom he loves and who obey him, how dreadful indeed will be his severity when against his enemies and those who are rebellious and wicked, the Lord Jesus comes in judgment. Peter quotes Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. The understanding is that he's trying to convey that God's judgment will be dreadful against the ungodly. Since the way to salvation is so thorny and difficult for the elect, and it is, Peter's referring to the difficulties of this present life. One writer has put it, our, our course in the world is like a dangerous sailing between many rocks, exposed to many storms and tempests, and thus no one arrives at the port except he who has escaped from a thousand deaths. I don't know if you feel it, dear brother or sister, but I often feel a thousand things pulling me in every other direction and away from Christ. It never fails to surprise me how many times I can get up in the day and be caught up in the urgency of the moments and forget to begin with God. And I grieve when I sit down to lunch and realize, oh, I've neglected the Lord. How can I take a step forward into a day without, without asking the Lord for his blessing? Without pleading with God, please help me. I know that I cannot, I cannot interact with people, nor my family members, nor even think rightly unless God helps me. And so to begin the day with the Lord is essential as a believer. We recently had a church camp out, and we went as young men, as men, some of us older than others, but with our young men, we had a lovely time together. And I'll bet you we, we, we were talking about it as. After having had a perpetual fire for the parts of three days, we all smelled like smoke outside. And we were remarking how the children would go home and their mother would smell them and say, you smell like a campfire. I hope that happened. If it didn't happen, then, well, you, next time you've got to get yourselves more smoke. But I can go back and I can pull out my hoodie that I wore that day and I can smell the smoke on it. And so the Christian should should get to heaven with an aroma of smoke. The smoke of all the cares and the difficulties, the suffering and the persecution, and the trials of life and the tribulation of life that we have endured. But we'll get there. And that's what Peter is saying here. That there is a judgment, and it begins with the household of God. We will see within the community of God's people that first harbinger of how God deals with sin, because he disciplines us for our good. And sometimes it's painful, exceedingly painful. But that is a precursor to God's judgment that he is reserving against the wicked, storing up for the last day. Meanwhile, we are kept by his grace. And even though we endure fire and shipwreck, nonetheless, through his power, he is our pilot and he gets us to precisely the place where we are destined to be. We will enter into glory with the smell of smoke and fire on our clothing, though we will not be scratched nor burned because of God's care. There's one last thing in this passage, and that is the, the happy humility of suffering. Humility is a hard thing, but when we endure suffering, we are entrusting ourselves into the care of the faithful one. Therefore, verse 19, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. 
My suffering, the difficulty I experience in this life, is never separated from the will of God. If I find life difficult, precisely because I'm a Christian and I'm trying to live for God, the truth is that it's according to the will of God. It's the will of my Father that I should learn in this way how to draw near to Christ and the value of knowing Christ and how to glorify Christ. When we endure suffering, we are entrusting ourselves into the care of the faithful one. He will never leave us nor let us go because we are his children. Great is the Lord's faithfulness. He will not suffer our feet to be removed. He, 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 will, he that keeps us will not slumber. The Lord will preserve us from all evil. He will preserve our soul. He is a faithful God who will perfect all things in you and in me. And the end goal is that God will present us, that we will be presented before God one day in the last day, completely sanctified in the inner person. So we should view our lives as a deposit to lay confidently at the feet of our God to be returned to us. When the time comes, we will find him in the meantime to be a faithful creator, a good steward, God, infinite, eternal, unchanging, omniscient, omnipotent, perfect, and glorifying himself always. You know, everyone in the world acknowledges that God is a benevolent God, and we need to understand that he is so. But the benevolence of God is intended for our good, enabling our suffering for him in this world. We were made, we are upheld in this life for this great end, that we may be true to the principle of obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, the principle of duty and living for him, that we may put down all desire and appetites for this world, because we know that to be conformed to this world is to be in enmity with God, but to be transformed by God through the word of God is God's intention for our soul. God calls forth his perfection in us, raises us to energy, infuses the dependence upon our God, wears, weans us from the love of this life through the persecution that we endure and the suffering that we have undergone. We can't doubt the benevolence of our God. And rather, even when we experience suffering, we must entrust our souls to our faithful creator and acknowledge that he will do right. There's a wonderful statement from an individual who wrote this about believers, and I'll close with this. Others can and you cannot. <clears throat> if God has called you to be really like Jesus, he'll draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility and put on you such demands of obedience that you will not be able to follow other people or measure yourself by other Christians. And in many ways, he will seem to let other good people do things which he will not let you do. Seemingly religious and useful men pull wires and work schemes to carry out their plans, but you can't do it. And if you attempt it, you'll meet with such failure and rebuke from the Lord as to make you solely penitent. Others may boast of themselves, of their work or of their success or their writings, but the Holy Spirit won't allow you to do it. And if you begin it, he will lead you into some deep mortification that will make you despise yourself and all your good works. Others may be allowed to succeed in making money or may have a legacy left to them, but it's likely that 
God wants you to have something far better than gold. A helpless dependency upon him. That he may have the privilege of supplying your needs day by day out of his unseen treasury. The Lord may let others be honored and put forward and keep you hidden in obscurity. The Lord, because he wants to produce some choice, some fragrant fruit for his coming glory, which can only be produced in the shade. He may let others be great and keep you small. He may let others do work for him and get the credit for it, but he'll make you work and toil without knowing how much you're doing and then make your work still more precious. He may let others get credit for the work you've done, making your reward ten times greater when Jesus comes. The Holy Spirit will put such a strict watch over you with jealous love and will rebuke you for little words or feelings or for wasting your time, which other Christians don't seem distressed over. So make up your mind that God is an infinite sovereign and he has the right to do as he pleases with his own. He may not explain to you a thousand things which puzzle your reason in his dealings with you. But if you absolutely sell yourself to be the slave of his love, he will wrap you up in his jealous love and bestow upon you his many blessings which come only to those in the inner circle. Settle it forever then that you are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit, that he is to have the privilege of tying your tongue or chaining your hand or closing your eyes in ways that he doesn't seem to use with other people. Now, when you're so possessed with the living God that you are in your secret heart pleased and delighted over this particular personal, private, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life, you will have found the vestibule of heaven. So we must be convinced that we are, we belong to the Lord. And so what can a Christian do but to give ourselves over to God, to entrust our souls to our faithful creator who always does things right? You know, this passage happens as we close in light of chapter 3, verse 14, always being prepared to give an answer to someone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And there it also speaks of observable good behavior in Christ and suffering and doing good. My dear friends, are you suffering for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to venture forth in all of your various friendships, the friendships that you have that you've worked so hard to curry favor in? Do you realize that the friends that you speak of and the family members that you speak of, they're going to hell without Jesus Christ? They're destined for the full outpouring of God's wrath. They're lost in their condition. The most loving act you can do is to share the gospel with them. Is to to venture on that friendship and to risk it. That they might ridicule you. They might not understand. Your relationship may change from that day forward. But you've got to take that opportunity because you are a minister of God. You're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you spent a certain amount of time with an unbelieving friend, but you've just never really said a word? My dear friends, we will be held accountable before God for what we do with our relationships and with our time. We are stewards. Have we become complacent and desirous of abstaining altogether from suffering? I don't want to suffer. 
I just want to have a good relationship where I don't have to have any obligation to do anything or to do anything for Jesus. I just want to relax. Are you avoiding suffering at all costs? Well, one day we'll stand before the Lord and we'll give an account for our stewardship of the days that he has given to us and the relationships that God has given to us. Are we avoiding uncomfortable conversations? Do we know in the that quiet, sovereign voice of the Holy Spirit in the back of our mind, I need to speak up here. I need to say something. I need to tell my children, I'm going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You can live life you, the way you want, but I'm not going to abstain from that relationship. I'm going to serve Him because one day I'm going to stand before Him. I've given my life over to Him. He has stewardship of me and of my days. And therefore, I'm going to serve the Lord and no matter how bizarre you think I am and strange you think my my commitment to Christ is, yes, I've committed my life to my faithful creator. Some of us need to say that. Some of us need to bravely step up and speak that. We need to invest in those relationships that we have, the friendships that God has given to us. And to say, look, We've been friends a long time, but I've never really said anything. I need to, because one day I'm going to be held accountable before God. And there's no more loving thing that I could do than to tell you that you are you're in a position of opposition against God. God is going to come and judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of mankind. You're a sinner, and the only means of relief from that sin is trusting and believing in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Will you believe it? I'll walk you through it. I believe too. And you may have a thousand questions, but if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, he's coming as your judge one day. Or are we ashamed to speak to our friends about Jesus? My dear friends, how can we possibly be when he gave himself for us and has suffered in the flesh for us? Let's pray.